today, our sermon text is from Genesis 50, verses 12 through 21. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. All right, our preschoolers can be dismissed to their class. Y'all can head on out. I want to invite the rest of us to turn to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to conclude our summer series looking at Genesis 12 through 50. We'll mainly be focusing on Genesis 50 verses 15 through 21. This summer, we have focused on the patriarchs of Israel, the patriarchs that we find in the book of Genesis and their stories, Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, and, and Jacob's sons, and we've been looking at the story of Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons, for the past few weeks. Joseph's story and the overarching story of Genesis comes to a beautiful, fitting end here in Genesis 50, with Joseph explaining to his brothers and to us how he was able to forgive them for all the evil they had done against him. If you notice in that, what, what Amanda just read, the brothers are, are worried that Joseph won't forgive them. And so they, they come and they say, hey, uh, Jacob, our father, before he died, he, he said he wanted you to forgive us. Will you forgive us? The interesting thing about that is Joseph had already forgiven them. Back in Genesis 45, we're going to look at it a little bit later. But Joseph chooses reconciliation over revenge. And here, Joseph is not forgiving them for the first time. He is explaining to them how he is able to do it. He chooses reconciliation over revenge. You know, there's a scene in one of my favorite movies where one of the characters, who's a really interesting guy, he, you don't learn this until later, but he's an outlaw who is masquerading as a hangman in the 1800s Wyoming area. And, and in the course of this, there's this prisoner that, that he has that he learns he is going to execute, you know, very soon after a trial is, is conducted. And he's, he's in this place with this, this prisoner, and he enters into a conversation. And he raises a question about the difference between revenge 
and justice. And, and in this, this monologue, he, he addresses the prisoner who's on the way to trial for murder, and he asks, what's the difference between a jury and a judge sentencing you to death and the families of the victims taking justice into their own hands? This is what he calls frontier justice. What's the difference between real justice or, and frontier justice? He ends up asking this. He says, but ultimately, what's the real difference between the two? The real difference is me, the hangman. To me, it doesn't matter what you did. When I execute you, I get no satisfaction from your death. It's my job. I execute you in this town. I move on to the next town. I execute someone else there. The man who pulls the lever that ends your life will be a dispassionate man. And that dispassion is the very essence of justice. For justice delivered without dispassion is always in danger of not being justice. And the point he's making is that vengeance or revenge, it may feel good for a moment. And that's because it's so very close to justice. But vengeance or revenge is always in danger of not being justice. Now what we can say here is that Joseph chooses reconciliation with his brothers over revenge because, just like this character, he also has found the real difference between the two. And that's what we're exploring this morning, the real difference between revenge and forgiveness, or revenge and reconciliation, the real path to forgiveness, both vertically between us and God and horizontally between one another. One of the hardest things to do in life is to forgive someone who has sinned against you. It's even harder to reconcile with someone, especially someone who's betrayed a relationship in some way. Now, this is true in friendships. This is true in marriages. This is true between parents and children. This is true between church members. And it's also hard to go through life without keeping grudges, without keeping a record of wrongs against us, without holding on to feelings of animosity toward those who have done us harm. But the end of Joseph's story shows us so very clearly that we could not possibly have more motivation or reason to forgive other people. Last week we saw how Joseph had tested his brothers when they came to Egypt. Well, sometime after that, Jacob finally joins the party. He comes to Egypt and there's this beautiful reunion. Joseph, he finally reveals his identity to his brothers. He forgives them and then is finally reunited with his father in this really beautiful moving scene. Time passes, the family, they, they settle in the land of Goshen, which is there in Egypt, and just before Jacob's death, he, he gathers the family together, the brothers are all there, and he bestows blessings on his sons, except for a couple of them, and he just curses them. Man, <laughs> to be in that room, you know? It's like Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they finally receive the, the judgment that we're all just like waiting for if you're reading through the book of Genesis, and Jacob, he, he doesn't bless them, he curses them, but... Um, then Jacob dies. So Jacob, he dies, and he requested that he be buried with his fathers back in the land of Canaan. And so with this elaborate funeral procession made up of all of Pharaoh's servants, they take his body back to Canaan for burial. And many days pass, and there's much mourning. And then the sons of Jacob return to their homes in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And we reach a colossal moment for the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the promise of God and the blessing of the nations is now vested in these 12 sons of Jacob. But even though, even though Joseph had forgiven his brothers, they still felt the fracture that their sins had caused. They worried. And as, as readers of Genesis, if we don't know the story, we should worry that Joseph would use this moment to take revenge against them. It's not just the brothers' lives that are at stake. The promise of God continuing seems to be at stake. They worried that Joseph's kindness and his mercy was due more to Jacob's presence than Joseph's character. And now with Jacob gone, they feared the absolute worst. So once Jacob died, they feared that Joseph would no longer have any reason to treat them with compassion. So they fabricate this story. They just make it up, just out of thin air. And they say, hey, you weren't there. You know those people? It's always, you know, yeah, you weren't there, but this is what they really said. You're no one else is ever in the room except that person. This is the brother. So, like, Joseph, like, it just so happened that you were out of the room. And, you know, Jacob, our father, he said that you need to forgive us. And they don't say this to Joseph's face. They send a messenger. Well, Joseph approaches them. He meets them face to face, and as he approaches them, they bow their faces to the ground. They're laid out in front of him, and they declare themselves to be his slaves. Can you see them? Can you see this scene? All-powerful Joseph standing in the full regalia, the, the full authority of Pharaoh's court in Egypt. Eleven brothers on their knees arms extended, faces in the dust, begging and hoping to become what they originally sold Joseph into. Joseph is in the perfect position to take revenge on his brothers. Nobody would fault him for it. He has the power. No one in Egypt would question his authority or could question his authority other than Pharaoh, and he wouldn't. He has the motive. These brothers didn't just offend Joseph. They betrayed him in the worst way imaginable. And all of the pain and all of the anguish for all of those years were probably not that difficult for Joseph to remember. And now, with his father gone, there's no one to stop him. But instead we read this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's words and actions at the end of Genesis are some of the most beautiful and challenging and gospel-rich words I've ever read. These words have the potential to forever change how you relate to other people and how you relate to God. These words are for those of us who keep grudges and count offenses. They are for those of us who doubt that God can or will continue to forgive us. Because we feel like we've crossed that line one too many times. And if I'm honest with myself, when I read this passage, I know that I want to benefit from the truth of Joseph's words here. I want them to be true, but I don't always want to model them in my life. But I have to. I have to. We have to. 
If the gospel is more, anything more than just words on a page, if it is a reality that shapes and changes my heart, I have to, we have to not just marvel at Joseph's words here and rejoice in the truth. We have to model them. We have to put them into practice. Joseph is in a position to exact frontier justice or vengeance, but he doesn't. He forgives. He reconciles. He provides. He speaks words of comfort and kindness. He treats his brothers as brothers and not enemies. How is he able to do it? Three reasons. He knows his place. He trusts God's providence. And he reflects God's love. Three reasons. He knows his place. He trusts God's providence. He reflects God's love. These are the three crucial elements of forgiveness and reconciliation. We have to refuse to take God's place. We have to rest in his providence. And we have to reflect his love. Let's look at these one by one, starting in verse 19 of chapter 50. Refuse to take God's place. Joseph chooses reconciliation over revenge because he is refusing to stand in the place of God. He tells his brothers in verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You know, this verse always makes me think of something my dad used to say whenever he was a coach and he was an athletic director for years Whenever players or, or parents or coaches would complain about something that really didn't have anything to do with them or their role, he would, just, he would just stop and he would say, look, here's how this thing works best for all of us. Coaches coach, players play, and parents stay out of the way. And he would say that, he would say that whenever there were issues you know, on a team. And he'd be like, coaches coach, players play parents stay out of the way everybody know their role and that's just that was it basically know your role and stick to it stay in your lane do your job don't worry about anybody else's job and so when his teams they had any problems or his coaches had issues it was always because parents were trying to coach or players were trying to coach or coaches were trying to control things that were far above their pay grade joseph here is saying i think i'm just going to stay in my lane how am I able to forgive you and reconcile with you? Why don't you have to be afraid? Because I'm going to stay in my lane. He's essentially telling his brothers, you guys are afraid that I'm not going to keep the peace that I established. And, and you're trying to motivate me to keep the peace on the basis of some fabricated you know, story about something that my father said. You needn't worry. I don't, I don't need any more motivation. Bringing judgment on you is not my job. See, when, when we hold a grudge against another person, or when we try to make someone pay, maybe even in small ways, for the sins that they've committed against us, we're acting as their judge. We're playing God. And we're not their judge, and we're not God. In fact, almost every form of sin can be traced back to an attempt to be or play God. Think about when sin first entered the world. That ancient serpent, the snake, in the garden, tempts Adam and Eve. How did he do it? Walks up to him and he says, did God really say she would die? Did God really say that? The first temptation was a question of authority. Does, does God really have the right to dictate your life? Who's really in charge here? So Adam and Eve, they sinned because they took God's place in deciding what was best for them. Victor Hamilton, he's a, he's a, a commentator uh, on, on Genesis, and he writes, Genesis begins by telling us about a primeval couple who tried to become like God and ends, up, and ends by telling us about a man who denied that he was in God's place. Adam and Eve 
attempted to wipe out the dividing line between humanity and deity. Joseph refuses to try to cross that line. Joseph will only be God's instrument, never his substitute. That's so key. I love how Tim Keller puts it too. Tim Keller says, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. And the fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. Love that. Joseph, of all people, was in a position to play God in the lives of his brothers if he wanted to. That's what makes the scene all the more dramatic. That's why they're scared. That's why they're on their faces. Joseph was not only one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt, he had literally just become Egypt's savior. And in fact, in a real way, the savior of the world. He put Egypt in a position to not only survive the famine that it was coming through, but to provide for the surrounding regions as well. And so many people were saved, and they had Joseph to thank for it. Here he is standing here. So to play God in his brother's lives and dish out a little frontier justice, a little vengeance, that wasn't just tempting. It was possible. He could do it with impunity. But Joseph knows his place in the world. He may be Pharaoh's right-hand man, but he's not God. And so he knows that vengeance is just a little bit above his pay grade. Joseph realizes something very simple, very clear, yet something we miss all too often. God is God, and we are not. What does it look like for us to take God's place when another person has sinned against us? How are we tempted to do that? Because we're not like Joseph. We don't have all the power in, in the world. Well, in our heads... Here's, here's, what it, here's how it looks. We obsess over their sin against us. We obsess over it. We think about it all the time. In our hearts, we don't want to admit this. I'll admit it for you. I'll admit it for myself. We want them to suffer for it. If someone sins against you, sins against you, wrongs you, harms you. When you play God in someone else's life, when you try to take God's place, you want them to suffer for their sins against you. You may even want things in life to not really work out that well for them. You may even smile just a little bit when you see them struggle. They had it coming. Well, they deserve it. Or you get upset when you see good things happen to them. You're more sinful than you think you are. You're more capable than you think you are. And with our hands, it doesn't always show up like this. It's probably the least common of the three. But sometimes we actually do take action against people who've sinned against us. And when we take vengeful actions in our heads, our hearts, or with our hands, we're taking God's place. Submitting to God's authority rather than asserting your own against another person allows you to get out of God's throne and leave vengeance and justice to him. There's so much freedom in Joseph's perspective here. So much freedom. Simply refusing to take God's place sets you free from not only vengeance, but feelings of hatred and feelings of bitterness that well up in your heart. It sets you free to do something you think is impossible when someone has sinned against you in a really serious way. It sets you free to let offenses go. 
move on, forgive, and even reconcile. We actually don't have to hold a grudge against anyone. It's not that we shouldn't do it. We don't have to do it. We don't have to to hold a grudge against anyone because God is the sovereign judge of all the earth who will one day set all things right in his time and in his way. Do we actually believe that in our finite attempts to make people pay or to hold their sins against them, hold a grudge, our attempts at eye-for-an-eye justice, do we actually think that that will be more effective than God's eternal and perfect justice? Well, probably not. We probably don't think that. But our version of justice is more immediate, which makes it more thirst-quenching, if only for a moment. And that's why Winston Churchill, I love what he says about revenge. He says, revenge, of all the indulgences, is the shortest and the most expensive. So even though our grudges have hidden in them, probably genuine and good desires for justice, we can freely let our grudges go because we can trust God to deal justly with those who harm us. Paul would later write in two places, first in Romans 12, he would say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never, he says. No circumstances. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says again in 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You see, Joseph, he is leaving all of the writing of his wrongs to God. Joseph is not minimizing the impact of his brother's sins against him. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't bury his pain down deep in his heart. He doesn't excuse their behaviors, but he does forgive them. He has remained open to reconciliation, and that is such a hard thing. It's a hard thing for us to do when other people have wronged us. But just like Joseph, no matter the circumstance, no matter the offense, we too can remain open in our hearts to reconciliation with those who have wronged us. And we can only do that when we know that God is God and we are not. As soon as I wrote that, I had an objection in sermon prep. This is how I do sermon prep sometimes. I wrote that down, and I was like, yeah, but I mean, and I was arguing with myself a little bit. And the objection that I had was this question. Well, yeah, but, like, what do you do when reconciliation is not possible? You know? You have that perspective. And you're trying to die to yourself. But it's just not possible. Here's what I would say to myself. First, we're prone to think reconciliation is impossible a little too easily. So we need to be careful with that mindset. Don't, don't too quickly close yourself off to forgiveness and reconciliation just because it may be difficult or just because it may take a lot of time or just because you don't want to. Don't close yourself off. And you also need to know that reconciliation with another person looks different in every relationship. Refusing to take God's place does not mean you don't need to confront someone in their sin. 
I mean, don't, don't let someone convince you, you know, oh, why are you, why are you bringing this sin to my attention? Are you God? I thought, Genesis 50, 19, are you in the place of God? No, no, that's not, that's not what is, is in mind here. And it doesn't mean that we overlook sins, and it doesn't mean that trust in relationships is automatically returned when there's been betrayal of some kind. Reconciliation doesn't even mean that the relationship will ever be the same as it, as it was. Reconciliation does mean that forgiveness can always be given, and our hearts can always remain open when we're entrusting matters of justice to God. But we can also truly and sadly, and some of us with experience, say that reconciliation is not always possible. One of the most difficult and painful situations that I can think of is when someone harms you or they sin against you in a really serious way and they don't acknowledge their sin, they have no desire to repent, they have no desire to reconcile, they'll just end the relationship and they're done with you forever. And you feel like they have gotten away with their actions without facing any real consequences. We can call it unrepentant, abandonment, betrayal, abuse, whatever. And I know we've all experienced some form of this. And the best biblical advice that I can give you when other people in your life sin against you and you feel like they've gotten away with it and you, feel, and, and you know there's just no way that the relationship can be mended, it's over. The best advice I can give you is to resist the urge to vindicate yourself. Like Joseph here and Jesus after him, leave vindication and vengeance and justice to God. Let go and move on in faithfulness to him. Now, moving on sounds insensitive, you know, because sometimes that's used in insensitive ways. Oh, you're upset about that? Just move on. Get over it. That's not what I mean. Moving on looks different for each of us as well. And it looks different in each situation. Sometimes moving on requires counseling. Sometimes moving on takes a lot of time, years. And sometimes moving on involves a ton of grief and sorrow over a relationship that you know will never be healed and will never be whole again. And sometimes you may feel like you will never really move on from the pain and the grief that this betrayal has caused. But I can promise you that you won't bring healing or wholeness or find the satisfaction that you desire through grudges or vengeance. Entrust them to the Lord. Move on in faithfulness to Him. He will see to it. He will make things right. When we refuse to take God's place, we're leaving justice in the hands of a holy and just God, leaving us free to forgive others in our hearts, no matter the circumstance. So we refuse to take God's place. It's how we reconcile. Second, we see Joseph doing this. He is resting in God's providence. How is Joseph able to forgive his brothers? How is he able to reconcile with them? He is resting in God's providence. Joseph tells his brothers, and this is probably the most memorable part of this dialogue, or, or this uh, monologue from Joseph. He says, as for you, in, in verse 20, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil against me, but God meant your evil for good. So Joseph was not only refusing to play God with his brothers, he also understood that every single evil thing that they intended against him, you know, slavery, death, those things were actually intended by God for good. What an unbelievable perspective and strange perspective. Now let's, let's set the stage here. If we go back to Genesis 45, and you can do that, you can turn back to Genesis 45. This is where the, the reconciliation and forgiveness actually happens. Okay, so in Genesis 45, turn there. And, and we start in verse 4. Okay, in verse 4, here's what we read. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Verse 5, God sent me here. Verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God has made me lord over all Egypt. Let's, let's be clear with our language here. God's not just using the circumstances that he's finding in this mess of a family. It's a little bit more intentional than that. God intended, he meant the evil the brothers did for good. God intended it, he purposed it. God did it. God brought him there. Now, here's where we need to observe a, a really important tension in Joseph's, Joseph's theology here. There are three truths that we have to hold in tension with one another as we interpret this verse. The first one, the brothers are responsible for their sins. That's the first truth. They're, they're responsible. People make their own choices. Human responsibility for sin cannot be denied just because we believe God is sovereign. All through this story, Joseph's brothers are responsible for what they did to Joseph and in, in other facets of their lives as well. And in, in some ways, they are held responsible. And we see that especially in Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49. He curses a, couple of his, uh, a few of his sons. He brings judgment upon them for the sins that they've committed. They're responsible, and that can't be denied. Every single one of us is responsible before God for our actions and our choices and our decisions and our thoughts and our desires. But there's a second truth. Okay, so that's the first truth. The brothers were responsible. People are responsible. Second, God himself does no evil against Joseph 
And he doesn't even desire evil against Joseph. So God can have no evil thoughts toward his children. He's not, he's not up in heaven twirling his mustache, you know, what can I get them into today? It'll be for their good. It'll be for their good. But, oh, it's so enjoyable to watch. No, it's not like that. Um, what this means is that God's plans are never for evil in the believer's life, but always toward the goal of their well-being and wholeness. He, he doesn't have any evil thoughts against Joseph or against any of us, even though bad things happen to us, which leads to a third truth. We have to hold all three of these in tension with, with one another. The brothers are responsible. God desires no evil and does no evil against Joseph. And third, God somehow mysteriously and providentially intended even the evil desires and actions of his brothers for good. So God is in control, and his will in this world cannot be stopped. That's kind of the point here. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is at work. And that's the picture that we see here. Joseph, after being sold into slavery and imprisoned, he can say, God sent me here. God did this. And how this works, how, how God is sovereign, how, how we remain responsible, how God intends evil without doing evil, it's kind of a mystery. But these are the truths that we find in his word. And this is the important truth that remains. God did intend all of the evil that happened to Joseph for his good. And here's what we need to remember. Just because we can't see what God's doing in hardships or suffering in our lives, it doesn't mean that he's not working in your suffering. You may not be able to see it, but he's at work. And there's, there's another lens. Just because you know, you read this passage, you read Romans 8, 28, and you know in your head that God is working in your suffering, that doesn't mean that you're going to see how he's working in your suffering. You see, we all, we all want to suffer like, like Joseph does here, right? Where very clearly Joseph is able to come at the end and take a big picture view and say, Oh my, I see it. God brought me here. Look at all the people that are saved. And we want to see that play out in our own lives. We suffer in some really serious way or our family goes through a hardship and then you look back one day and you're like, Ah, yes. It made no sense at the time. It was so painful at the time, but God was clearly working. We want to suffer like Joseph, but sometimes we suffer like Job. And we wonder, and we ask, and we beg, and we pray, and we plead for answers. And the only answer we get is God himself. He is sovereign, and he is in control. And we'll be left with the question, will we trust him? But regardless, in the words of John Newton, everything is necessary that he sends, and nothing is necessary that he withholds. Joseph knew the sovereignty of God. He knew that God is in control, even in the worst of circumstances. And so here's how it connects to reconciliation. After everything he's been through, notice how Joseph lives, confident in God's sovereignty over his life. He doesn't go off and slander or punish Potiphar's wife. We've all forgotten about that by this point. We just move on with Joseph. And we see him climb the ladder, you know, God dragging him up the ladder, it seems. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't, once he's in power, bring judgment upon Potiphar's wife. 
who had lied about him. He doesn't bring down judgment upon that cupbearer who for years had forgotten all about Joseph. How satisfying it would would have been for Joseph just to roll up one day and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, remember me? You know, and bring judgment. No. And when he sees his brothers, he doesn't condemn them for selling him into slavery. He says, you have no reason to be afraid of me. God ultimately did all this. God sent me here. He led me here. He has been in control. God's providence in the midst of even unspeakable actions. It's an invaluable resource for the purpose of reconciliation. When you know that God is at work in your life, even in the sinful, evil actions of those who harm you. Or you can even look at it a different way. If you're uncomfortable with that language, if that's just not... Whew, you're having a hard time, you know, just sitting with that, and you need more time. Listen, not even the sinful actions of other people against you can stop God's purposes from being fulfilled in you. Nothing can stop his purposes from being fulfilled. But when you know, when you have that perspective, you are empowered to let offenses go. You are empowered to forgive. And you are empowered to reconcile with another person. You can let it go. You can move forward. You can repair and mend and heal a relationship. And you don't have to hold their sins against them because you know that God was even working in their sins against you for your good. How would it change the way that you think about how someone has wronged you if you consciously realized that even their sinful actions first had to flow through God's good and sovereign hands? If you knew that no action against you, no matter how wrong or malicious, can stop God's good purposes from being fulfilled in you and around you, how empowered you would be to let go of grudges and how open you would be to forgiveness and reconciliation. There's one more thing we see here from Joseph. He's not just refusing to be God or stand in his place. He's not just resting in his providence. He's reflecting God's love. And I absolutely love how the Joseph story ends. I love that Joseph doesn't end his speech with a theological statement. When most of us think of Joseph's response to his brothers, we think of him saying, verses 19 and 20, Am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's what we memorize. End of story. We think of Joseph's refusal to play God. And his confidence in his sovereignty. But don't you love what he says next? He says in verse 21, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And the author comments, Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And, and, and his love is so genuine and it's so compassionate in this moment It's almost like the readers along with Joseph are letting the offenses of the brothers go. You almost sort of, it almost sort of melts away. You you read that and you forget. You may think, well, yeah, I mean, they're his brothers. They sold this man into slavery. They left him for dead. That's who he's speaking to. That's who he's comforting. That's who he's being kind to. That's who he's providing for. It's their little ones that will be sitting on Joseph's lap and laughing with him. He says, brothers, I'm not God. 
I can forgive you for what you have done because even though you tried to kill me, God intended everything that's happened to me for my good and for your good. So don't be afraid. I will take care of you. And I'll take care of your little ones too. Joseph is saying, even though you tried to kill me, you're safe with me. Your children are safe with me. This is what reconciliation looks like. This is what it looks like. The relationship is broken. It's fractured. There is genuine harm that's been done. And by refusing to play God and by resting in his providence and through his love and through his grace, extending forgiveness to another person, the relationship is mended in such a way that those who wronged you, you are able to hold their children and love on them. This, this is what it looks like. This is how God forgives us. Don't miss this. He doesn't forgive us with hesitation. He's like, yeah, I mean, I guess. But then keep you at arm's length for a really long time. He forgives us with joy. He doesn't forgive us begrudgingly. He, he forgives us gladly. God forgives us. And then he comforts us. He cares for us. He draws near to us. So we need to extend this kind of love and forgiveness to those who harm us. We need to do it as far as God does to those who harm him. And how far is that? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The brothers... They were right to be afraid. And sin, a realization of guilt, should create fear in our hearts. But even, even more than fearing the judgment of people, what Joseph is saying here, basically to the brothers also, just sort of subtly underneath the surface is, don't be afraid of me. I'm not God. I mean, you might should be afraid of God, though, because you have sinned against him. And he, you know, unlike me, he is God. But even more than fearing the judgment of people, our sin should create a fear of God's judgment. Joseph owed his brothers nothing. He had the power, he had the right to demand justice and exact vengeance. Even more so, God owes us nothing. We are guilty before him. He has the power and he has the right to demand justice and exact vengeance upon us for our sins against him, for the harm that we have done to him. But what do we find? What is the testimony of the scriptures? But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ Jesus. For while... We were still weak, Paul would write in another place in Romans. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. No one had more right to take revenge on his enemies than Jesus. And although Jesus was God himself, he could have truly said, I am in the place of God. We read in Philippians that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself. 
Although Jesus was perfectly righteous, he was betrayed. And he suffered for the salvation of many. Jesus is the ultimate example of men meaning it for evil, but God meaning it for good. This is what the early church prayed in Acts 4. For truly in this city they prayed. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So although you have sinned against God and stand before him red-handed with guilt, God forgives you. Jesus did not vindicate himself on the cross. He emptied himself. He suffered at the hands of evil men. And while we try to take God's place and bring judgment down upon others, Jesus took your place, bearing the full wrath and judgment of God that you deserve so that you and I can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Way back in Genesis 12, the blessing that was promised to Abraham, it keeps marching forward through the sovereign grace of God. And because of this work of Jesus in your place, when you place your faith in him, the one against whom you have sinned looks on you in the way that Joseph does his brothers and says, do not fear. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. You belong to me and I belong to you. In this grace, we can extend forgiveness to those who sin against us. We can love and we can release our grudges against even our worst enemies, fully confident that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also with him graciously give us all 